As you can see on screen, this first reading, we have four readings today, is from the book of Luke in the New Testament, chapter 22, verses 29 to 53. Sorry, verse 39 to 53. Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives. This is on page 747. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. So we're reading from Luke 22, verses 66 to chapter 23:25 At daybreak the council of the elders of the people both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them If you are the Christ they said tell us Jesus answered If I tell you you will not believe me and if I asked you you would not answer me But from now on the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God They all asked Are you then the son of God He replied You were right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. As they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no bias for a charge against this man. Basis, sorry. (laughs) But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea. By his teachings, he started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. 
From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests of the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. He said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Waiting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Good morning. Our next reading will be from Luke 23, 32 to 49, and that's in page 748 in Bibles. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there. Along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was, not, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until, there, until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. 
The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Do you remember magic eye pictures? They were huge in the early 90s, I think. It was like every coffee table had a little book of of these things on them. If you're too young to know much about them, don't worry, you weren't missing out on too much, really. But let me explain them for you. What you'd do is you'd look, when you first look at them all, you see sort of swirls and dots and you you look really hard and you sort of do crazy things with your eyes so you look a little bit possessed. And if you're lucky, and I mean extremely lucky, a hidden object will pop out at you, 3D. Can anyone actually see what the hidden object is in this one? It's a teapot. In a way, art house movies sort of remind me of magic eye pictures. You know, some of us, like me, we walk out of the theatre thinking, well, that was weird. That's a three and a half hours of my life that I'm never going to get back. While your friends are talking about all the hidden things that they love about it, which you didn't even realise were in the movie. It's almost like they'd snuck out into a different theatre during, during half-time. Like a magic eye, something hidden stood out for them in the movie. Well, this scene in the Bible that was just read out for us, can be a little bit like a a magic eye, a a tiny bit like an art house movie. Let me explain how. See, all the characters who are in this scene, there at the cross, they're all seeing the same event. We get to hear their different perspectives. And for most of them, there's no deeper meaning to what they're seeing. It's just a man dying on a cross. But for at least one of them, like a magic eye, there's a meaning that suddenly, clearly, rises out from this scene and changes everything about how he sees it. Now, of course, it's not just the characters that we heard in this scene, in this story, who have a view of the cross. Anyone who's ever heard the story of the cross has a view about it. We all here have a view about the cross. You know, from one extreme, the view that it never even happened, through to the view that it happened but it was just another cruel, meaningless death in a long line of cruel, meaningless deaths in this world. Or maybe your view is that it happened, it has meaning, but it just, you just don't see how it has meaning for you. Through, right through to it has meaning and it changes everything about how I see life. But regardless of what your view is, can I ask you today to look at the cross afresh for the next few minutes with me. Suspend belief or suspend disbelief if you can and enter the story with me as we, as we look at the cross through the eyes of the characters that we've just met in this scene, the soldiers, the people and their rulers and the criminals. So first in this scene, the camera pans down from the faces of the crowd watching down to the ground we're lying on the, on the dirt and the rocks. We see rough beams of wood and three rough-looking men being held down by some even rougher-looking soldiers. And here we see the first view of the cross. The soldiers see Jesus on the cross and they see nothing remarkable 
in their minds, there were three criminals being pinned down. Three people just getting what they deserve. Or maybe not. Maybe they're unlucky. Maybe they've been unfairly accused. But such is life. That's not their problem. Getting these three men secured to these crosses so that they don't run off, that's their problem. There's nothing remarkable about what's happening for them. Because when it comes to executing people, they know everyone's more or less the same, really. Now, admittedly, things have been a little bit different for them today. To start with, they don't usually have to do their job with such a big crowd of people looking on. It's strange how it's, it's, it's so much harder to concentrate on making that hammer hit the nail with so many people watching you as you do it. But despite all the drama, there's still the same job to be done. And everyone reacts the same when you're hammering a nail through their wrist. They all cry out. They all beg you not to do it. Or they curse you. Or beg their God to save them. Or beg their God to curse you. You just got to block them out and get on with it. They were finding it a bit more difficult to do that today, though, to block them out. Because the criminal that was drawing all the crowds, instead of begging them to stop, Instead of asking his God to curse them, this criminal was begging his God, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Okay, they had to admit that was different. Weird, really. I mean, does this guy really think that his God is going to be able to stop that next nail going through? And if his God really could strike them down, smite them, Weird that this guy would, hold him, would ask him to hold back. And not just hold back, actually, but forgive them. Weird. But after being deployed in this God-forsaken place, full of weird people, with weird little fights, nothing really surprises them anymore. They're actually finding it all quite amusing. I mean, someone's written the King of the Jews above the cross. A pathetic king of a pathetic people. They give the call. Hoist him up, boys, and up he goes. Up goes the cross, but the camera stays down with those on the ground, with the local people and their rulers watching. And here we see the second view of the cross. The people and the rulers see the cross, and they see success. This is what they wanted. Unlike the soldiers, they're not just doing their jobs. I mean... They're not oblivious to, to what's going on here. They've been following this Jesus for quite some time now, seen what he's been doing and they haven't liked it at all. They know he saves others. You couldn't deny it really. They'd seen it with their own eyes. They interrogated people who'd been healed by him. They couldn't explain how he did it, but they didn't need to. He was clearly presenting a view of God that was just wrong. The view of God that dragged his name through the mud. And now God's justice has finally caught up with him. Like God promised, will always happen. The wicked will not prosper. The irony was almost too good to be true. He could save others, but he can't save himself. He had the power to end sickness. Obviously, God had just been setting him up for a fall. Probably because he'd overstepped the mark. You know, at one point he even claimed for himself the power to forgive sins. The power to save people from God's judgment. 
pretty funny that he can't even save himself now from God's judgment. So they call out. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. They see the cross and they see a fraud. He's just like the other two criminals on either side of him. How fitting, framed by sinners. And now they even hear one of them mocking Jesus as well. What's he saying? The camera pans up and to the left, to one of the criminals hanging on the cross. He sees Jesus on the cross and he sees an idealist finally facing reality. For all his talk, Jesus is more like him than he realises. Already he's, he's starting to struggle for breath up there on the cross, up next to Jesus. But still he can't keep his mouth shut. His best quality has always been consistency. All through life, he'd always looked for approval from people, always been the comedian, the naughty kid, the bully. And he keeps it going to the end because what he'd seen of this Messiah, this Jesus, made him sick, pious, even in death, acting calm, unafraid, still concerned for his stupid, misled followers. Look at the women down there, cowering, crying over him and his empty claims. The criminal thinks to himself, can't they see that he's just like the rest of us? He's just like me, for God's sake, a con man. So he yells over to Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. It's just a joke, really. He's not serious. Because when he looks over at Jesus on the cross, he sees an empty Messiah. No use to him. No use to anyone. Yes, His own life was ending badly, but at least he'd stared the cold, hard reality in the face. There is no God, or at least there's no God that was interested in him. That was the joke. There's no Messiah that would be interested in saving a criminal like him. Then the camera pans right. As a man equally as despicable as this criminal interrupts him, He says, don't you fear God, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. This criminal sees Jesus on the cross, and he sees an innocent man suffering unfairly. He's not completely sure himself why he's even speaking up. I mean, it's not like he's a saint. He's no hero, and doesn't he know it? He's not a nice person by any stretch of, his, of the imagination. I mean, going through his head are the crimes that he's done. And they're unspeakable. The faces of the people that he sent ahead of him to the place he's now about to go. He knows what got him nailed to this cross. And as awful as this cross is, he can only say he deserves it. And about to face God himself, he knows he's got plenty to fear. But it's obvious, it's obvious that this man next to him is different. Anyone can see that the rulers feel threatened by him and have manipulated the Romans into doing their dirty work for them. And what he's starting to see that the rest of them seem to be missing is that somehow Jesus is doing this for a reason. Yes, he's suffering, he's in pain, he's struggling to breathe, but somehow he's not out of control. He's not there at their mercy like they think. 
he's somehow there at God's mercy, somehow achieving exactly what God wants him to do. He looks over at Jesus. And despite the fact that Jesus hangs there weakly, pathetically even, he sees a king at work for his people. A king who's not coming to an end, but is somehow destined for a future kingdom. Who can know exactly what it was that he saw? Was it something that he'd seen Jesus do in the past? Jesus' miracles? His teaching? Was it something Jesus had said as they'd carried their cross, crosses together to the hill? Was it the way that Jesus was dying? Whatever it was, the hidden meaning of the cross suddenly becomes clear to this criminal. That here is a king who is refusing to save himself. Not because he can't. But because he can't save himself and save others. This is a choice he's made and what a dreadful choice he sees suddenly clearly it's not the nails that are keeping jesus there it's something else something more powerful something wonderful and seeing something of the deeper meaning of what's going on he dares to ask jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom because he knows it's too much to ask for Jesus got no reason to do anything for him. But what else can a dying criminal do? I mean, he has every reason to fear God and no way to make up for what he's done. The camera moves across to Jesus and Jesus simply says, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Today. That criminal who hours before was caught stealing murdering someone in his sleep who knows but he's told that in just a matter of hours he'll be in paradise jesus says to him he'll be the first person to enter his kingdom the flag bearer of a new humanity at this point the camera turns upwards it's almost like it's trying to peer into heaven and the sky comes into focus but even though it's midday there's only darkness above it's, it's unnaturally dark. It's almost as if creation itself is threatening to break apart. Blackness is being drawn over Jesus like a curtain, like a shroud. It's like a barrier between Jesus and the one he calls Father. If the camera could see into heaven itself, if we could somehow see outside creation and, and into the very heart of God, what would we see? Where we'd see that at the cross, Jesus is taking on to himself every single human incompatibility with God, every single act of evil, every act of defiance against God, every time of indifference toward him, small or great, Jesus owns it in our place. But the camera can't take us there to see that. So instead, to show us what happened, what's happening, God tears the curtain in the temple to show that what Jesus was doing was removing every barrier to God that our rejection of him had created. That's what the curtain in the temple meant. It represented. It showed that there's a barrier between God and us and that there was no way for us to break through it. But in that very moment, as Jesus dies there, it's torn apart. 
Jesus sees the cross and he sees it as the only way to bring people to God. Jesus sees the cross as the only thing that enables us to come freely into God's presence, unafraid, forgiven, with our hands empty for those who have the eyes to see its true meaning. The camera pans back down to those on the ground because the events that are happening around them are making it hard for the people watching to be so sure about their view of the cross. One of the soldiers changes his mind a bit and says, surely this was a righteous man. Even the people leave disturbed, not quite sure of themselves anymore. One criminal remains unmoved, but the other enters into paradise, unafraid, welcomed by the Father into the kingdom of the Son. And what's the difference between them? It's not a matter of goodness. It's not a matter of getting what they deserved. The only difference is that one recognised who Jesus is, a king at work, bringing an undeserving people to God. And so he threw himself on his mercy. The scene fades to black. And then the camera pans to us. And we're standing there in the scene. At the beginning, I asked you to suspend belief or suspend disbelief and just consider the story from the view of the characters. But now I want to ask you what you believe about the cross. See, Luke, who wrote down this scene, he did it because he wants us to ask that question. What's my view of the cross? What do I make of it? Through the eyes of the characters in the scene, Luke has said to us that the cross has the power to take you into the very presence of God, to pull the curtain back that hides God from you, to tear the barrier apart that keeps us from God. At the cross, we too can suddenly, clearly see that God is not a a God who will just lightly wave away our indifference to Him. He won't let our pride and and selfishness and and greed just slide. Our lack of love for him and people, it must be punished. And yet God is a God who refuses to save himself, but sacrifices himself in Jesus for the sake of even criminals who will turn to him and see him for who he is. In this book, Rico Tice says that if you could see a picture of God, if you could look at a picture of God, everything about God captured in in just one frame, the essence of who God is, would you look at it? It's a really interesting question because he goes on to say it's not what we were expecting but God does give us that picture of himself and that picture, he says, is the cross. In the end, This is not an art house movie or just a story. It's certainly not an irritating magic eye picture. This is God tearing back the curtain and showing his heart. This is an invitation. See, the cross is an invitation that says, Can you see now who I am? Can you see now who you are? Can you see that that is no barrier to me? Come and enter my kingdom. Be a part of it.
I uh, work from home and sometimes when I'm really busy, my kids slip stuff under my door. And if I'm really distracted, I I can miss what's going on and, and not even really notice it if I'm trying to get stuff done. But then I look around and and there are scraps of paper building up on the floor of my office. A really bad response from me at that point would be to ignore them or to put them in the recycling or to get annoyed. See, that would be a bad response because it would be to miss their true meaning. Because when I open them up, do you know what these scraps of paper are? They are carefully drawn pictures of pure love. They're not random people on those pages or random scenes. I'm there. You can recognize me, no doubt. I'm carefully drawn and my daughter is there in her favorite color, green. We're together. We're smiling. Every single detail has a meaning. And to overlook the picture, the hidden meaning, which is really not so hidden, would be to overlook the relationship. Don't miss the meaning of this true picture that God has painfully drawn for us, that we've seen today. God may not be who you expect Him to be, but that would be a tragic reason to miss the meaning of the cross. This is God showing real love, love stronger than nails, love stronger than death. Cross is a picture of God making a way to him when there there is no way to him. And to dismiss the cross, to overlook it, would be to dismiss relationship with God. But see the hidden meaning of the cross and it changes everything. If you can see just a, a glimpse of this hidden meaning, can I encourage you, keep looking. Take the next step. I mean, I think that book is actually a brilliant way to do it. It's thin, which is good. And it's free today too. There's some up the back. Grab one, have a read through. See if you agree with Rico Tice's view that the cross gives a clear picture of God. Or take a step a different way. Talk to somebody who sees the deeper meaning. Or if you like, talk to me. And if you don't want to do it here, you can just fill that in and give it to Craig later and I'll give you a call. Don't miss the meaning of what God has done for us there. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the reminder that Good Friday is of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. Lord, help us to see the true meaning. It's not what we expect. It's hard to believe for some of us. But Lord, if we see it correctly, it's almost too good to be true, that you would love us to the degree that you have loved us. Lord, help us to see and to be changed in everything by this powerful picture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final reading for this morning is verses 50 to 56 on page 748. Jesus' burial. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. 
Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock, one which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Mm. 